We are in the book of Obadiah, and again, it's 21 verses. It's a short book. In fact, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and it is, uh, but it's, it's really, really nice. Now, a couple of things about Obadiah. We talked about, even when we talked about, if you remember Joel, our study in Joel, uh, we didn't know much about Joel. Uh, same, with, same with Obadiah. Don't know much about him. Uh, he, uh, there was a lot of people in the Old Testament named Obadiah. We don't know if either any of those people that were mentioned were the writer of this book. We don't know. We don't know where he lived. We don't know where he was from. Uh, we don't know when this was written, which makes it difficult. Uh, as, a, as a student of the Word, you want to be able to place this in this context, right? As we just talked about how important context is. Um, here's what I do know about Obadiah. His name means servant of Jehovah. So that's good. Uh, he's the servant of Jehovah, and he is a person that heard from the Lord, accepted the call to write this book, write this prophecy. And uh, I want to I say something, too. You know, if you look through so far in our study of the whole Bible, uh, we have gone and seen, um, you know, in the book of Genesis, God set up the family and the patriarchs. We saw in the book of Exodus, he frees his people. Um, and, and God is always in, in pursuit of people. He wants to dwell with people. He wants to bring them close to Him. He wants to have them close to Him. And one of the things that we've seen is, I've, I've noticed as we've gone through this kind of survey, we've seen kind of His response to, human, uh, to the humans rejecting Him, right? So even in the Garden of Eden, when humans rejected Him, He said, we need to shed blood so that we can cover this sin that you've had. And I want to set up this time where you bring me this offering. And I want you to set up this time where you do this. So he's, his, his response to that was the shedding of blood covers sins. Then we see, uh, if, you, if you keep going through in a, in a large-scale view, uh, whenever the children of Israel were led out into the wilderness, he's, his response to them was, uh, as he took them out of slavery, here's, here's ten commandments that will keep you in a holy lifestyle. Then he sets up a tabernacle, and that tabernacle was his response to stay close to his people. Then he, uh, they, they would move around the wilderness and with this tabernacle. Then we see that he builds the temple. He sets the temple in place. Again, it was God's response to people. He says, here's what I want. Uh, here's how I want you to communicate with me. Here's how I want to set my, my um, presence up among you. And we look through, and when the temple is destroyed, that's Solomon's day, right? Then the, the temple gets destroyed. And uh, we look throughout the scripture, he, sent, he was sending some prophets, right? He sent some prophets. And then he sent these 12, what, what our, our um, Bibles will, will set them apart as the minor prophets, right? We see them as minor prophets. Now, why, what makes them minor? I don't know other than, <clears throat> I guess, just the length of their, of their words. But the minor prophets are 12 uh, books in our Bible that I think is another one of God's responses. And I think it's a pretty powerful response. Uh, this is how he's communicating to his people. We see him communicate from the days of old with, through Moses or through um, the tabernacle or through the, the temple or through things, how God is, is choosing to communicate with his people. Uh, and then through preaching prophets and then these writing prophets, especially these 12, um, really pack a big punch and we're going to see as we go through the end of the year, 
with these, uh, these, these books, but they, they really pack a punch, and they are very, very directed and very specific. And so uh, knowing that, Obadiah is one of these uh, small, quote, minor prophets, and he is, uh, but his words are not minor at all. In fact, he is dealing in this book with the people of Edom, the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. And Edom uh, is known for producing Edomites. Edomites are the people of Edom. And uh, in order to understand that, uh, let's, let's look at where the Edom, Edomites come from. So we're going to go way back, back to Genesis. So if you remember a guy named Abraham, Abraham had, uh, had two sons. He had a son of, his, of the covenant that God had said, I will bless you and make, you, uh, make your descendants numerous, and they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And uh, he had a son of the covenant. But he, if you remember, Abraham had some issues in his life. Uh, you can find this back in Genesis 22 and through, uh, through 25, um, and you can kind of read the story of how that played out. Uh, but Abraham was a guy who, um, he, now his firstborn son was not the son of the covenant. It was a man, a boy named Ishmael. Ishmael, if you remember, he was born uh, from, his, from Abraham's wife's uh, hand servant, her handmaid, uh, Hagar. So here's, way, here's what this, this all means to us. So Abraham uh, was given a, a covenant by God. God says, I want you to, you're going to have a son and he's going he's gonna to be a blessing. Well, Sarah, his, his wife, couldn't get pregnant. And so he goes, Sarah says, hey, here's the, here's the thing. Let's, uh, why don't you go and, and have a child with my servant? It'll be the same thing. We're under the same household, right? And so he goes over and has um, a, a relationship with her. She bears a son. His name is Ishmael. And it is not the covenant child that God had talked about. So then uh, later on, Sarah gets pregnant. Sarah has Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael. So these are the two uh, people, right? Now, in case we're, we're wondering, Ishmael was the, um, uh, he was born of the servant girl, Hagar. She was an Egyptian, uh, born of her. Isaac was born of Sarah. He's the covenant child. Uh, Ishmael's descendants were, uh, were, went on to be a warlike people, as the Bible says. They were a warlike people. In fact, if you know much about our culture today, um, Islam had a prophet. That prophet's name is Muhammad. Muhammad claimed to be in the direct lineage of Ishmael. So he, that's who he claimed. If you're ever talking to a, a, a person of Islam, a Muslim, uh, one thing that we can all, all agree on is Abraham. Like we can all agree on him. It's whenever, it's whenever the two sons are born. See, what they think is because Ishmael was the firstborn, he deserved to have all of the, the first birthright, all the property, all of the everything. But we know because of the covenant of God, it's actually Isaac. So that's the, honestly, that's all the debate right there. It's, it's that question. What did God really mean when he said to Abraham? That's the, that's the question and debate. But so uh, it's important to know that because you got to kind of know some family tree stuff. Because then what happened is, so let's so Ishmael and his descendants, warlike people, uh, ended up being very very uh, treacherous and very difficult. So let's go over to Isaac now. Isaac had um, two sons. He had twin boys. Remember his twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. 
just minutes apart. So you got these two guys uh, uh, that were born of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Esau was the first twin to be born, and Jacob was the second, which again asks us the question, well, which one gets the right of the firstborn privileges, right? Well, we, we know that story. If you were in the book of Genesis with us, you know that um, uh, Jacob tricks Esau and with his mom, and you know they, they pull this clever trick. Jacob ends up with the blessing. And so, uh, but before we get there, Esau was a, um, Esau was, was noted in the scripture as a wild, hairy, hunter, killer, lover of sensual, exotic things. That's who Esau was. Jacob was, could not have been more opposite. He was the uh, smooth, um, uh, comforting, gatherer, caregiver, the lover of spiritual things. So uh, Esau was dad's favorite. Jacob was mom's favorite. That's kind of the, the way we see it uh, unfold in the scripture. And uh, we know that Esau was a, um, a pretty simple guy, but a, a, he was going to get the job done. Uh, Jacob, however, was clever, a little bit of a deceiver. Um, Esau married a daughter. Here's why I wanted to mention, go back to Abraham. Esau married a daughter of Ishmael. And um, so why? Because she was, a, she was a, a, a dark pagan Canaanite, lived in the land, um, and uh, was a worship false gods because Esau liked exotic things. That's what Esau liked. So that's who he married. Jacob, on the other hand, married someone that loved the truth, uh, a follower of Yahweh. Now, uh, Esau hated Jacob. Um, and so here's what we need to know. Esau hated Jacob. And uh, Jacob, his name, if you remember, it turns to Israel. Jacob is Israel. Esau is Edom. That's who, that's who Esau, that's who comes from Esau. So Edom does not like the Israelites. In fact, whenever the exodus happens, whenever the, the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, they were trying, they wanted to go through the land of Edom and Edom wouldn't even let them come through that land. That was the, that's a, that was probably one of the biggest uh, visual displays. And, and here's the thing, way back in Genesis, God even gives a little bit of um, he tells Israel, you know, don't take this from Edom. Don't take this from these people. Uh, this can be theirs. Don't mess with them. Um, but ultimately, there was still always this tension. And, and Edom never liked Israel. In fact, they did some things uh, that we'll see here in the book of Obadiah that were just uh, wrong and, and, and sly and clever and, and terrible and awful. Um, but the, the Edomites, they would not let, let the Hebrew people pass through their land. Um, and that, that was found in the book of Numbers. You can see uh, a scene where they try to go through the land. Edomites wouldn't let them. Um, they hated them. Uh, even, and you may be wondering, well, um, if, you know, the prophet Muhammad, you said, was of the line of, of Ishmael, who did, who did the Edomites produce? Um, have you ever heard a guy named Herod the Great? You know the one who uh, killed all the babies when Jesus was born? Herod the Great was an Edomite, came from this group. In fact, the Edoms, Edom, Edom produced the Herods that were those uh, men. Now, they were men of very high power and very high prestige, and they wanted to, um, to wield their power in unhealthy ways. We see as unhealthy ways. They saw as ways to gain, um, gain more and more influence and more and more power. So now, if, now that we know a little bit about who Edom is, 
Edom is that, that people that are against Israel, they hate them, it goes way back to two brothers fighting. Okay, that's what it goes back to. Everything goes back to two brothers fighting, right? And you say, well, you can't say that exactly. Cain and Abel. Let's keep going back, okay? Everything goes back to two brothers fighting. Even Jude, in later way in the New Testament, will say the way of Cain and talks about that. The way of Cain was, I'm going to work with my hands and please God. The way of Abel was, I'm going to give God the first fruits that he produced because he's the one that produced it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to just trust he's, his grace is enough. Whereas Cain thought, I'm going to produce, I'm going to hope that my work is enough. Two different camps, right? Everything's between a bro- two brothers, seems like. Um, that's why it's important to love your brother and treat him with respect. I'm telling myself that, nobody else. <laughs> but as we, as we look at this, that's where Edom comes from. And so Edom and Israel are never um, in, in, in great favor with one another. Um, and specifically, Obadiah was a prophet to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, again, the lineage of David. And uh, that's the, where the throne of David still was reigning. Um, so Obadiah is, uh, is, profiting, is, is prophesying to that group. And so here's what he says in the book of Obadiah. We're just going to jump right in. We're going to look at this um, kind of a couple verses at a time. And it shouldn't be as long as all the others have been because there's just not as much words in this text. So in Obadiah, uh, the first two verses, here's what he says. The battle is coming to Edom. That's what he says. It is a simple, uh, you know, we've heard a report. And how's he going to do it? He's going to stir up the nations against Edom. Um, God is not going to, you know, sometimes God will use his people to display his might. Sometimes God will use the world to display his might. We don't know, we don't, we don't get to pick how God is going to display his might. But those first two verses, he says, the messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us against her, let's rise against her for battle. Um, and then he says, behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. He's saying to Edom, you're going to be, you, you think you're powerful. You think you have all this might. You think you have all this, this uh, authority, but the nations are going to stir up against you and they're going to come against you. Then the next two verses give us some very helpful insight. This is where you got to go into, um, maybe even go to the Holy Land and see what I'm about to show you in these next two verses. Because Obadiah is prophesying, and he says in verses 3 and 4 um, that the pride of your hearts deceived you, um, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Now, the clefts of the rock are a place in, um, in, in the Holy Land, uh, specifically. So this region, one of the most beautiful in the world, the Edomites lived in a place called Mount Seir, Mount Seir, uh, S-E-I-R. And they lived in this place, and the capital city of Mount Seir is Petra. Petra literally means rock or cut out of rock. And so this, this city that they lived in, if you go over there today, uh, here's what's awesome. You go over there today, there's no people that, that the people that live in, in Petra are like Bedouins. They're, they're not, I mean, there's not even like, it's not a, not a place anymore. It's like a place people stop through, right? Uh, there's no, there's nomads living there. Um, but the city of Petra uh, is, is found in between these, these rocks. If This is the most, one of the most beautiful places in all the world. If you go up to the highest peak right now in, the, in this part of the Holy Land, and you see, and you say, where, this is like uh, south, it's about 170 miles south of Amman, Jordan. Okay, so if you, if you kind of look on a map and you see where Jordan is, go south, um, and then you'll see kind of this, this spot looks a little bit like wilderness. It's rocky. It's a rocky place. But here, if you can go up to the highest place and look down on this, on this area, 
you'll see a lot of really tall, tall mountain sides, but they're all like rocks. And then you'll see these really steep, deep valleys. And so if you look at it, it kind of looks like a maze. Okay, so you can kind of see like little routes that you can take uh, through in between these great, these great rocks. And in fact, there are some prophecies, now I don't want to get into this too much because depending on where you land in this uh, could be controversial, but there are some prophecies that believe the city of Petra is going to be the place that the Jews escape and hide whenever the, the battle of Armageddon comes. So if you go in, and the reason is because militarily, it's a very safe place. You can't fit a, a horse, and you can't fit a horse and another person side by side walking through these, some of these canal areas. And it's, it's rock. And the, then there's some places that they've carved out like uh, caves in these rocks. And you can go through there, and there's some spaces that are that narrow before you get to the city of Petra. So it would be a place where, like, in order to get a military through, I mean, they, got, they bottleneck down to one or two people at a time, right? So you, you can battle off one or two people. You can't battle off 40 at a time. So the place of Petra is a very protected city, and it's high up in the mountains. Of course it is. Why? Because Esau was a, a wild man who loved to be out in the wilderness, right? He loved to go explore, hike, trail, camp, whatever he's got to do. So his descendants are going to come on that, that uh, character naturally. So they go to the high places that are hard to get to is where they camped, it's where they lived, it's where they built their nation. In this city of Petra was their capital city. And this is where, uh, and so much so, there, these, um, these, some of these people, in 1940, 1943, I think, I was reading a book about this. Um, it's, it's called A Man from Petra. And uh, I, don't, I don't encourage everybody to read it because you can get kind of lost in it. But um, the, uh, how do you like that? Books you shouldn't read <laughs> from the pastor. Uh, this, uh, anyway, this guy, he, t- he talks about the city of Petra being this place that the Jews re- will reside and um, that the Jews will escape to. And so back in 1943, he took, um, took $8,000 and he bought biblical literature printed in, in the Hebrew language, and he went to Petra, and he was hiding them in the clefts of the rocks in that, in that uh, place. I've met a guy that has gone over there and done this. Like, it's, it's crazy. He's gone over there, he's, I'm like, what do you mean you, you took Bibles and you hid them in these rocks? He's like, well, because when the Jews escaped to here, this is where he said they're going to need something to read while they're in the caves while all the battles are going on. And I was like, wow, okay, that's... And a part of me is thinking, like, how cool would that be, right? If that's like my, the Bible I stuck in here is like lead somebody to Christ, like it's the New Testament that they need that connects to the old. But um, anyway, so that's a freebie for you today. If you ever want to know anything about uh, the Petra and prophecy, uh, that is a uh, uh, that is a theory out there. I'm not saying that I support or claim it or at all, but um, anyway. So you've got this city of Petra, hard to get to, hard to get through, um, and, and it's, it's, there's, there's these caves that are built into this. And so one of the things that he says here in verses 3 and 4, um, you know, again, if you can see this, you see these peaks and valleys, beautiful area, um, and it's where they, they are living. And he says, the pride of your hearts deceive you, those who live in the cleft of the rock, uh, in your lofty dwelling. Again, they're high up in the peaks, and he says, um, uh, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, you will nest among, and you nest among your stars. Therefore, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Your land won't be able to protect you. 
All these rocks can't keep you from my judgment. Not going to happen. Now, as Obadiah is writing this, I mean, he's, he is pouring out this um, harsh reality because the Edomites were, were also kind of a, um, they, were, they were a clever people. They were smart people. They produced some evil guys. Uh, but listen to what happens next. So he first says, like, just because you live up in these rocks, up in this high, lofty places, does not mean that I can't bring you down because I am going to. I'm going to bring you down is what the Lord says. Then the next two verses in verses 5 and 6, uh, they talk about not only were they protected by the rocks, they were also very rich. As I said, the Edomites began to grow in, 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 in clever methods and ways. They had a lot of money because what they would do is they would set up at a gulf or at a, at a, at a port, or they would cut roads through trade routes, and they would set up a toll, and they'd make people pay a toll, or they would steal all their stuff. Like, these are, these are mean, evil guys. So what they would do after they would collect all of their money, they collect all of their um, you know, collections or if they would steal from whoever, trade, whoever was trading or um, the markets or whatever, what they would do is they would take all those and they would put them in their, in their caves and they would store up treasures. That's what the Edomites were known for. Uh, they were not only living in these places that seemed untouchable, they also would set up these, these places that are checkpoints that would just rob all of the the nations around them and nobody liked them like nobody this was not people were not a big fan of edom unless edom cut you a deal so here was here was what edom would do they would become the middleman between the two trades and so they would make both sides happy but both sides had to pay them that's how they would that's how they they gained so much financial resources and so um, what it says here in these verses, a lot, and, and just so you're aware, a lot of the kings of Judah, if you go and read through uh, the, the scriptures, a lot of the kings of Judah, in order to gain their influence and their strength in their kingdom, would have to subdue Edom. That was, that was the people they had to subdue because Edom was the middleman touching everything. Imagine a web and how a web, everything crosses in the middle of a web, right? The, the middle of the web was like Edom. They wanted to touch a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. They wanted a piece of the pie from everybody. So uh, Judah, the kings of Judah, a lot of them, especially the first uh, several kings of Judah that were very prosperous, they would try to, um, uh, to, to overwhelm. They wanted the trade routes because whoever owned the trade routes owned the land. That was the way it was because you have to pass through. They, the kings of Judah wanted you to know if you want to pass through this area, you had to come through Judah people first, right? You had to come through the Judeans first. You could not just go through Edom. And Edom always was set up everywhere. And they were there, again, just like a, like a, like a virus that won't go away. You know, you had one of those lingering viruses. That was Edom. They just were a lingering virus that was just holding on to other pieces and other parts, which made it politically very difficult. But Obadiah saw the coming uh, doom of Edom in, this, in verses 5 and 6. As he says, um, uh, if, if, grapes, if grape gathers came to you, uh, would they not leave you gleanings? And it says how Esau has been pillaged and all his treasures sought out in verse 6. They, there's going to be nothing left. So Obadiah sees this, and Edom at the, at the point is, is rich, wealthy, living high in the cleft of the rock and everything. I mean, they seem untouchable. They seem wealthy. They seem all this. And Edom says, your rock's not going to protect you and your riches are not going to protect you. Your caves are going to be drained. You're going to have nothing left. 
Just because you've been storing up riches doesn't mean I can't come and take them all away. Then he goes in verse number 7. Here's where he says, um, And all of your allies have been driven have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you, and they have prevailed against you. He says this, he says, listen, your rocks can't protect you, your, your riches can't protect you, and your allies can't protect you. They've all turned against you. Here's what, if you know much about a middleman that tries to make everybody happy, at some point, he'll slip up. At some point, some, people don't like paying that guy. Right? People don't like going to him every single time that you're really trying to get somewhere else. And so they made all of these allied deals. They made all these deals with all these people, and eventually they are going to abandon them. Uh, not only would their allies, I love verse 7, because it says not only will they abandon you, they've also set a trap beneath you without you even knowing it. He's like, they didn't know, not only did you, are you going to turn around, when they're in your day of distress... He's, here's what he's saying. In your day of distress, you're going to turn to your, to your ally to help you. They're not going to be there because they've been setting a trap behind you the whole time. Not only are they not there to help you, they're actually there to hurt you, and you didn't even realize it. He says, that's what's going to happen to you, Edom. That's what's coming to you. And then um, here's what he says to the, uh, to the military and to the men of Edom in verses 8 and 9. He says that the military is going to be killed, destroyed. In fact, he uses the word in verse, in verse number 9, they'll be slaughtered. Your, your military men, um, the men, because uh, it says every man from Mount Esau, Mount Esau was the place, one of the places of training uh, for the military. That is going to be the place where all of your men from there, all of your military are going to be killed. You're not going to make it. Your, your rocks can't protect you. Your riches can't protect you. Your allies can't protect you. Your military can't protect you. I mean, it is a, again, we've talked about, <clears throat> as we've gone through these prophets, um, looking at these writing prophets specifically, we, there is some, uh, when, when God releases a judgment and his, the, the prophecy's full. Like, it's, it's not, it's complete. There's a day where you're, you got nothing left. And, and all of this is based on, the whole book of Obadiah is based on the Edomites' hatred of the Jewish people. That's it. That's what it is. And we look into um, verse number 10. And the reason I say that is uh, even um, in, in, Ob- in Obadiah, verse number 10, he, he changes. The tune changes just a little bit. Um, and he gives them why Edom deserves the doom that they're, that's being prophesied over them. So, you know, we hear the first nine verses, what's going to happen and what can't save you, and this is just truth. Then he starts in verse number 10, because of the violence. Because of the... Here's the reason this is coming to you. Because if I'm, if I'm hearing this and reading this, and I'm, and I'm the middleman, I don't know if you ever watched like a TV show that's like a law, a law in, in court, and uh, you, you got one defendant and one uh, prosecutor, or is that, is that what that, that is? I don't know. Uh, but you got two sides, right? And both sides are trying to plead their case to to get what they want. If I'm Edom at this point, I'm thinking, why is such destruction needed? I was just taking a little bit of money. I was just pushing the hand a little bit. I was just kind of messing with them. I, it wasn't all, I wasn't all bad, right? I was just a little bit bad. I wasn't bad enough to get completely wiped out. But here's what it says in verses 10 and 11. Uh, Obadiah says that the Edomites encouraged um, the, the, 
the Babylon, he, they encouraged the Babylonians to enter the gates. It says in verse 11, um, the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. He says this, not only you were encouraging, um, because here's what Edom does. Again, behind the scenes, they're pulling strings everywhere. They're connected to other, other nations. And when the Babylonians said, we're going to go and seize, seize Jerusalem, the Edomites were encouraging it. Yeah, you absolutely should. That's what you should do. And then it says, so because they encouraged it, it was like they were attacking it as well. Because in, in the last part of verse number 11 says, and you cast lots for, for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You were like one of those that went up and actually attacked the walls of Jerusalem. That's, who, that's, that's what you did. Don't think that just because we didn't, you know, this is God saying, don't think I didn't see that. Don't think I didn't hear those conversations that you were encouraging Babylon to take over Jerusalem. Don't, don't think I didn't hear that conversation that you had that you pushed. And you were not just spectators now. You are participators in the problem. You came up against Jerusalem. And then verses 12 and 13, uh, it says that the Edomites were gloating. They were gloating over the destruction of Judah. Um, they were rejoicing. In, in these two verses, what you'll see, it says, uh, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in his day of misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in his day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. That verse gives us a few images. It says, don't gloat or don't, don't boast in this and don't rejoice in this, right? He says, so when Jerusalem was falling, when your people, when Judah was falling to the ground, you not only boasted about it, you rejoiced in it. Do you know, throughout the scripture, whenever we hear of rejoicing, that is a spiritual response, Rejoicing is spiritual. And we know that boasting is human. It's, it's the, the, the fleshly side of things. So here's what he's saying. In your, in your human response and in your spiritual response, you were wrong both ways. You were against these people. You had no compassion on them. You were spiritually, this is how far apart your heart was. You were so against my people that you were, you, were, you were worshiping and celebrating and rejoicing the fact that they were falling to their doom. That's what God is saying. This is Edom's problem. <coughs> as, we, as, you, as we go through and, and read in even verse number uh, 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. He's saying this, listen, Edom, you've got more problems than you realize. You didn't understand just how deep your sins went. Here's what happens with, with sinners. Sinners say, well, I'm not as bad as, right? So here's what Edom would have said. I'm not as bad as Babylon. They attacked the walls, right? I just, I just sat back while they attacked it. No, you didn't. You, you, were, you were encouraging it. And then when they did it, you celebrated it. And God says, and I saw it and I'm not having it. So Edom, your doom is coming. I tell you, it's hard to imagine all of the nations that are coming up against Israel today that, um, that God's not seeing it. It's hard to imagine that because he sees it all. He knows it all. Um, in verse 14, here's what else they did. It says, Do not stand at the crossroads and cut to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You know what that means? I want you to picture it. Now, 
Prophecy is hard because you've got to really kind of jump into where he's at in the prophecy. So what he's saying to Edom is, Edom was known, as we said earlier, to be in the crossroads of a trade, right? They were known to be the ones that would be the toll. You, you pay, the, pay the guy, and then you can go on. You pay the guy this way, you go on. You pay your taxes to, this, to Edom. Here's, that's what Edom was known for. Here in this place, what, what God is saying is, don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. You know what he's saying? You're taking whoever you get in Israel, and then you're selling them off to the enemy. So all of the people in Judah that you, kept, that you held captive, that you gathered, you were a middleman again, because that's what your natural state was. And so what they would do is they would take the, the, the inhabitants of Judah, they would, they would take them, and they would deliver them over to the hand of their, uh, of their enemy. Uh, whether, they, whether they were then destruct, uh, uh, destroyed or whether they were deported out of their people into captivity, right? But that's what Edom was known for. That's what Edom did. So God says to Edom, listen, you were, you were encouraging the attack of my people. You were celebrating and worshiping the fact that they got attacked. And then the ones that leaked out that you got a hold of, you ended up turning around and selling them out. And you didn't help anybody. You, you, were, you helped none of my people. This is what you did the whole time. Then verse number 15 and 16, this is where it jumps. So uh, if, you, if you notice, um, in my Bible, there's a little heading change here. Uh, it says the day of the Lord is near. Um, and here's, what, here's where his, his prophecy jumps. Here's the thing I love about biblical prophecy, especially in the minor prophets, is that there's moments of, of close uh, prophe- prophecy of future, and then there's moments of far away, right? And again, it's, it's seeing these mountaintops. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago in one of the books. I don't remember now which one. But you see like the mountaintop right here. Here's Edom being destroyed. And then Obadiah catches a view way into the future of the next mountaintop. And it's the day of the Lord. And listen to what he says in verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. These, um, these two verses, uh, I believe these skip thousands of years. And I think they see to the last day when all the nations are going to get what they deserve. Everybody that's coming up, uh, there was this, uh, before this, there's this partial fulfillment, right? The book of Obadiah is partially fulfilled. It's, it's not, in our timeline, it's not fully fulfilled because it hasn't all happened yet. So we're still going to see that I believe there's a chance we, we're going, it's going to be close. I think we're, we're closer today than we were last week, okay, to this part. Um, eventually, the Edomites will be taken out, no doubt. Complete fulfillment will, be, will happen. Then, eventually, everyone who is against the Lord's people will be wiped out. They will be destroyed. They will be sent away to... Uh, a place that is not where God is. That's what's going to happen. And so knowing that in these couple of verses, um, Obadiah is pointing that out. Then he says in verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. I'll tell you this, um, in history, if you're, if you're much of a history buff, I am not. I wish I was. I'm more now than I've ever been. I, I wish when I was in school I'd have paid more attention um, 
but I was I was just a dumb boy, so uh, I wasn't wasn't focused very much, very well. Um, but here's what I have I have learned as I have been. Um, I feel like I've started life late, right? Because I didn't put enough effort into learning early. But what I've learned through history now um, is Israel has only ever possessed about 10% of the property that God had promised to Abraham. About 10%. Um, there's a day it's going to be 100. There's a day it's going to be 100%. I believe it. I don't, I don't think God's going to retract his statements. I don't think he's going to say that his word was wrong. I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but this is the verse, verse 17, where he says, Israel, Jacob, shall possess their own possession. They're going to possess it all. Everything that I've already given them, they're going to possess. God has, has promised that Israel would inherit that land, and that is Israel's land. And it doesn't matter if you think, oh, well, that land could be somebody else's. It could be, you know, maybe it was a little confusing. It wasn't confusing to God, and he's going to make sure they possess all of it. Um, so those, those couple of verses there stand out to me as, man, this is going to be the place. And then verse 18, this is, this is so good. Verse 18 says, The house of Jacob should be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and they... And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This is back to um, the people of Edom and Esau. Uh, when it you know a stubble is a um, uh, a stubble burns in fire, and there's no remnant that survives of a stubble. Uh, I, I pulled out a um, a commentary, and I was reading some things about this specific book in the Old Testament, and um, you know I, I think that there's a there's a point where we need to understand the difference in today and then, right? And then Obadiah saw something, and he was referring to it as, as the people he knew and he understood, the nations he understood. Now today, um, where the Edomites lived and where the um, uh, Moabites lived and the people of Ammon, which you remember, you've heard some of these, these nations now as we've gone through this Old Testament, uh, the people of Philistia, the people of... Um, uh, uh, Phoenicia, those areas, um, and uh, Syria, Egypt, you, you've heard these, you know, Egypt's kind of another power in the world now, and um, you've got some things, but all those places in the Old Testament, those names, you know, the people of Ammon um, don't have a, a region right now, or the people of um, Phoenicia, or the people of uh, Moab, or whatever, There's, you can't go over to like the nation of Moab, right? Uh, rather, now, today, in our day today, the, the Arabs own all of that land that, was the, that belonged to those people. So that's the, the big surrounding group of property is, is run by the Arabs, those people uh, over there in the Middle East. And um, even, even uh, Iraq, that was um, formerly known as, as formerly known, um, go way back, the, the people of Babylon. Uh, you got Iran, the people of um, ancient Persia. And if you, if you look at all this area, here's something to note. There is a day, and I can't say this with enough certainty, because I, I've read the Bible. I've read it, and it's, it's, this is, God does not lose to anyone. Um, they, all, all of those nations that we even talked about just a moment ago, they all hate Israel. 
They, do, they, they are all conspiring to... Now, I'm not saying that every single person within every single region, with that, you know, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying culturally, <coughs> they rise up against Israel and they want to see her defeated. And if you look at the, at the property map, I mean, Israel is a little slip of property. I mean, that's it. And then the Arabs own the rest of it. Like, and even down into Egypt and into Syria. And there's just all this. this but they, they, they don't like this nation of Israel. They just don't like her. And I'm telling you, it goes back to family. It goes all the way back to, to issues back in the Old Testament thousands of years ago. Thousands and thousands of years ago. But here's, here's what I think is awesome right here in Obadiah. When he, he talks about this, he's, Obadiah is seeing a nation, the Jewish nation, back in its own land, right? He says um, that Jacob will possess all their possessions. Then he says, and the house of Jacob will be a fire, Joseph a flame. They'll burn and consume them, and there shall be no survival for the house of Esau. There'll be no survivor. Um, the nations and territories that, uh, that continue to oppose Israel today or support Israel's enemies, uh, we see this in the book of Obadiah, right? One of Edom's big sins was they supported the, the enemy of Israel. They supported the enemy of Judah. And God says, that's a sin. You shouldn't support the enemy of my people. Um, and the, the, the people today that are promoting and supporting terrorism that goes into Israel um, to war against them, uh, in the end, those people that are against the people of God lose. They just lose. Just like a stubble gets burned in a fire, they are going to lose. And the way I know that is because the last part of verse 18 says, for the Lord has spoken. Like that's just, I mean, that, that seals the deal. Like there's no, um, there's no other option uh, for them. I think that, that sometimes I see in, the, in this, in verse 18, when it says Jacob of fire, Joseph of flame, here's what God is saying. The nations that rise up against Israel are rising up against God and his people. And God's going to use the Jewish people because he says for Jacob, and Joseph, flame and a fire, right? And who burnt, who, if, if Esau is the stubble, then fire is the one that is used to, to burn the stubble. Fire is used as the judgment. God is going to use the Jewish people as a judgment on the nations. That's what he's going to do. And so we, we see that here. And then he goes into verse 19. He says, the Lord's spoken, but here's where we're going. He, verse 19 and 20, to me, I see a, a, almost a revival. And revival is just in my heart and in my spirit. But um, talks about the, the, the people will possess this and this will happen. This will happen. He sees a, a, a reviving of the people into the right place, the places they're supposed to be. A renewing of the people to the property, Right. That's a revival in a sense. He says, and this, this is going to happen no matter who tries to stand in the way, who tries to get in the way. Verses 19 and 20 say there's a revival in the land coming. A, and, and this doesn't mean a, uh, this, is, this is a physical, these people will then possess this property back to where it's supposed to be. This is supposed to happen this way. This is where it's going to be. Then verse 21, the end of the book, it says, Savior shall, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom, and the the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You know, um, as he as he writes this, I'm picturing him with his pen, right? I like to write. I like to handwrite things. If I'm ever sitting in a meeting, I don't have a computer up in a meeting. I, I handwrite everything. Um, and part of the reason is there's some passion in handwriting. You can see, and you can you can also see in like in my when I write like where my ink may may settle for just a minute. My pen slowed down. 
right? You can see where, where the ink almost didn't make it because my pen was writing so fast, right? Um, I, I have this weird thing where I like to look at and see and, and talk to, you know, I try to talk to Obadiah. Now, I can't talk to Obadiah. I don't mean, I don't freak anybody out, but I like to, to go in and interview. You know, um, J. Vernon McGee always used to say that um, he, wanted to, he wanted to press his face up against the Bible bus and watch all the characters go by. Like, that's what he was talking about. And he, and, and he wanted to get in and interview the people. I want to know, where was Obadiah when he wrote this, right? What was he doing when he, when he was writing it? How did he hear from the Lord? And then did he write it down as he was hearing it? Did he pray and then like experience God, then go write it? What did he do? But here's what I, 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 I do know. When he was in the middle of this writing process, he sees Edom, right? That's what he sees. Even Mount Esau still, still deals with the Edomites. Um, but as I said, so I think he sees this, this doom of Edom coming. And there's a moment where he gets kind of raised a little bit. And then he sees past just, just the doom of Eden to, uh, to, of Eden to the um, Edom. I've said that wrong twice now. The doom of Edom, the Edomites. Uh, it's hard to say. I've, I've got, said a lot of words, guys. Uh, so the, uh, he sees this, this downfall of this people, of this nation. Then he sees past that, and it's like all the nations. Man, there's, all the nations are, are going to fall. And, and the Jewish nation, I see Jacob and, 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 and Joseph, I see the nation of Israel being what God uses to judge everybody. And then he talks about this, these saviors climbing this mountain. And here's what I believe. I believe he sees a, a deliverer and a king. And I think when he sees that deliverer and that king, here's, here's how this works. He is writing, and he says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule. And he says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And then he sets his pen down. You know, if we were to see the King Jesus and write the simple fact it's all his. And then set our pen down. There's nothing else to say. It all belongs to him. He's the king that's going to rule it all. I don't know today um, where, where you are in your spiritual life, but here's what I'll say. When we speak of that king, Jesus, that is to come back again, there's not much else we need to speak of. There's, I mean, he ends his, Obadiah, this no-name guy, I don't know who he is. I'm telling you, I've, look, I've done my research. I've tried to figure it out. Who is this guy? And he says, I don't matter. He didn't want to sign this after he's over with. He just wrote it in this last phrase, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And he sets his pen down. I hope and pray that your life can be so much about the Lord that you can feel the need and understand the peace to be able to set your pen down. Let's pray.